This morning, we're continuing our sermon series, Jonah in the City, and our scripture reading is Jonah chapter 1, 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, hey, good morning. My name's Nate. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, good to be with you. Um, just a quick note on one of those announcements, the Engaging King James Way neighborhood. Um, whether you live in this neighborhood or you don't, one of the things we're committed at Redeemer City for is to be, <laughs> is basically to renew our city through the gospel. And that means our location here matters. And so just as an elder team, we got away in January. The one thing we said is we wanted to take some really concrete steps in just building a relationship with this neighborhood. And so uh, whether you're a first-time visitor or you've been here for seven years, um, you're welcome. In fact, I'd say if you've been here seven years, let me challenge you to consider coming to that training. And uh, whether you've never learned how to share your faith or whether you've done it before, this is a great way uh, to start. So, all right, that's that. Let me transition for a moment here into the book of Jonah, and it actually fits because we said this week one in the book of Jonah that when God calls you in to a relationship with him by grace, he actually sends you out. And, and we said a while back that the book of Jonah, it's really about one thing. It's about getting new lenses. It's about getting new lenses to see our city with the lenses that God has, lenses of compassion, and what's interesting about the book of Jonah, if you've tracked with it at all, you know God comes to Jonah, a prophet, and says, Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites. Um, those are his enemies. And I want you to preach a message so that they might return to, to me. And Jonah, in great form, says, no. I'm not going. And he goes the opposite direction. Now, here's what's fascinating. The section that was just read comes right before chapter 3, which I know is, yeah, we know that. Thanks for that information. But in chapter 3, Jonah receives the same commission and says, yes. So right here, something happens to Jonah. His no becomes a yes. And this is what's pivotal. Because the same thing Jonah needs is the same thing we need. In other words, if you're here and you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm all about, like, I get it. I'm welcome into a relationship with God by grace, but I really don't want to go out. I don't want to be sent out. 
Or maybe there's other areas of your life where you're like, hey God, like I'm, I'm fine with this area you being over. But over here, this is, this is me, this, this is a no. Right here, whatever happens to Jonah here, this is what changes him. And this is exactly what will change you and it'll change me. So what is it? What is it that takes Jonah from a no to a yes? And it's one thing. It's grace. It's grace. That's what changes Jonah. So three things we're going to see in this passage. Firstly, what, what is grace? Secondly, how does it work? And thirdly, how do we put it into practice? So what is it? How does it work? And how do we put it into practice? So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Father, just pray this morning that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so what is grace? Um, we see it actually at the very beginning. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Most of us, when we think about the book of Jonah, we think it's about a big fish. And check this, the fish is only in there for two verses of the entire thing, okay? But here's what's significant. This fish shows us something. But before I go there for a moment, let me just put it this way. Some of you might say, Pastor, did this really happen? Like, did, did, did he really get swallowed by a fish? And I would say two things to that. One is, Jesus in Matthew 12 actually talks about Jonah being a sign. Jesus talks about this happening. And then secondly, there's actually accounts. Like, just a few years ago, there was a guy who was swallowed by a fish and survived. Like, there are things actually that have happened. But irregardless, let me put it this way. What's important about this fish is that actually he's an instrument of God's grace in Jonah's life. And to back up for a moment, oftentimes when people approach the Bible, here's what they think it's about. They think it's primarily about rules. They, they think it's primarily about obedience. And we'll get there in a moment, but I want you to listen. This is a professor from California in one of his books, he's a professor of linguistics, here's what he summarized Christianity about. He said this, Christianity works by a moral accounting system. Immoral deeds are debits. Moral deeds are credits. If you have a big enough positive balance or more moral credit, when you die, you go to heaven. If you have a negative balance, you go to hell. These general notions are shared by most forms of Christianity. Now, just for a moment here, George Lakoff, he may know a lot about linguistics, but he is wrong. <laughs> this is not what the scriptures are about. But let me say this, this is oftentimes what most people think. And see, here's the problem. One of the things that Paul says in Romans 2 is that no one is good, no, not one. In other words, if God is looking out over the world and he's trying to find someone to bless who's worthy of it, he will not find anyone. There's no one good. 
And here's what's interesting. We see it here with Jonah. Listen, Jonah is not a good dude. Um, He has just said no to God, running in the other direction. He's actually got on a boat, put a lot of sailors at risk because of his disobedience. A huge storm comes. And do you remember the reason why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? It's because he's self-righteous. That self-righteousness appears in a couple different ways. One is, he doesn't like the Assyrians. They're a different race. He's a racist. Secondly, he's also, he doesn't like the Assyrians because they're another country. He has this nationalistic pride. Now, let's just be honest for a moment. In our moment, how would our culture treat people that are like that? I would, I would venture to guess that most people would want this person canceled, right? In fact, when Jonah is thrown overboard into the ocean, into the sea, most people would be like, thank you. Finally, justice is done. But here's the point. God appoints a fish. He actually appoints a fish to save him, to rescue him. Not because Jonah deserves it. It's the very opposite. And see, that's the, that's the very definition of grace. Grace is essentially this. Grace is God's undeserved mercy towards those who deserve judgment. That is grace. And we see it in Jonah. And this is great news. Because actually the scriptures say without grace, you and I are without hope. You see, here's the deal. We, we may not have the same particular darkness as Jonah. We may not identify in terms of as a racist or as being nationalistic and thinking we're better than others, but there are other ways that that darkness, that that sin actually plays out in our life. In other words, we're all in need of it. So here's the next question. How does it work? How does this grace actually not just become an idea but actually, how does it work at changing us? You know, um, there was a show uh, back in like the like mid-2000s to early 2010s called How It Works. Did anybody watch this show? It was one of those shows where it showed you how materials that are made out of plastic and metal and ceramics are made. I mean, my middle child loved this show. And one of the things about the show just showed you the process by which these things were made. In verses one to nine, are actually showing us how grace works in a person's life. It's the dynamics of it. In other words, it's showing us what is happening in Jonah's life that's taking him from a no to a yes. And it's the very same things that have to be operative in our lives to take us from a no to to a yes. And the first is this. Jonah realizes He's dead. He's dead. Um, in the opening of the poem, the prayer, Jonah, when he cries for help, he says, he calls, he's, this is in verse two, he says, he was crying out of the belly of Sheol. And that term means the realm of the dead. The realm of the dead. And he says, later on, he says, the waters are closing over him, the weeds are wrapping around his head, 
There's bars that are closed upon him forever. In short, Jonah is done. Like he's as good as dead. There's nothing he can do because of his sin and rebellion. This is his judgment. There's no way out. So years later, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to a church in Ephesus, describing about who they were before they put their trust in the gospel, he says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, a number of years ago, I remember when I was um, in grad school uh, training for uh, pastoral ministry, I remember one of the professors inviting one of my classmates up and trying to visualize what it means to be dead in our trespasses and sins. And so he came up and he said, okay, I want you to play dead. So he literally laid on the ground. And then he got down and he said, get up. And then he got a little bit louder, wake up. And then he started to yell. And let me tell you what, my friend was such a good actor. He just played dead, right? Didn't respond at all. And see, that's the picture. That's our condition. Listen, there's a myth out there, and this is the myth. that says this, God helps those who help themselves. Can I just tell you, dead people cannot help themselves. The first dynamic of understanding the grace that will change you is understanding that because of sin, we are dead. But the second is that Jonah's experience was that he's culpable or he's deserving of it, he's guilty. In verse three, Jonah makes this statement, he says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. And this is interesting because in chapter one, when the sailors throw him over, it actually says the sailors hurled him over. And so, in other words, as Jonah looks back, he's seeing the sailors in that ship as basically agents of divine justice and judgment. They were God's instruments in my life of justice and judgment. And here's what he's saying. He's saying he's, he's guilty of it. He deserves it. Now, I know right now, as I say this, there are some walls that might be coming up. Uh, let me say three that I think are pretty common. Some of us would say, hey, listen, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not who I should be. In fact, there's quite a lot of things that are wrong with me, but do you know the family I grew up in? Or do you know the environment that I grew up in? In other words, when culpability comes up, we begin to go like this. It's because of that. It's not me, it's the environment. Now, can we just say a couple things here? Actually, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Your environment, what you grew up in, your family, your neighborhood, it does affect you. But here's the point. It's not determinative. 
In other words, it does not abdicate you from being responsible in terms of how you respond to your environment. And that's really important. Listen, we live in a culture that ultimately accentuates it's my environment. And there's truth to that, but it does that in a way in which it says you, had, you just had no choice. You are who you are. And do you actually realize how, how actually not empowering that is? Do you realize just how that flat out says you really didn't have any choice. You are who you are. There's nothing you can do. The Bible actually says both and. Yes, your environment, it affects you. But also you're responsible. David Paulson puts it really well. He puts it this way. Your situation is significant, but it is not determinative. And that's really, that's really helpful. In fact, I would say this. Oftentimes in the church, we minimize the environment. We actually say, no, your situation doesn't have anything to do with you. No, it actually does. It's, it's both and. But secondly, another wall that might come up is simply this. Well, this is just who I am. I've looked within myself, and this is my identity. And listen, this, the scriptures would say, firstly, this. Your identity is actually not by looking within, primarily, but actually looking outside of yourself. Actually, the story of Scripture is that you were created by God in His image to reflect Him. In other words, you are crowned with dignity and value. And yet, because of sin, it's broken. It's fallen. And the third, and this actually might be the most common, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Um, I'm a pretty good person. I'm above average, right? I pay my taxes. I love the kids I have. I find ways to serve in the community. Therefore, what do you mean that I deserve judgment? There's a, um, one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, and some of you know this, most of you do, there's a story that Jesus tells about the prodigal son. He has two sons, the father's two sons, and if you remember the story, the, uh, the younger son says, Father, you're dead to me. Give me your stuff. I'm out of here, right? And what's interesting about that story is the, elder, the, the, the oldest son sticks around. He's the really good son until the younger son returns. And the father welcomes him back, and the oldest son is so upset. He won't even go and celebrate and all of a sudden, he's now outside of a relationship with his father. And, you know, here's what's going on. When you say, when this comes up, I'm not that bad, one of the things you have to reckon with is simply this. Some of us, we obey, we follow the rules, we are ethical and moral, because really we want to be in control. We want to put God in the dock. God, you owe me a good life. I've been obedient. I've been good, but don't you understand? That's actually the same thing that the youngest son was doing. God, I don't want you to do anything to do with my life. I want to have control of it. I want to do what I want to do. See, both ways are ways of actually not having a relationship with God. You see the three walls? They actually don't deal with what is actually underneath each one of our hearts. Actually, there's different ways in which we avoid God, rebel against God, and actually, if we would understand 
just how culpable we are, it would actually lead us to what we need most. And this is the third thing Jonah sees. He sees the temple. I know it doesn't mean a lot at this point, but think about this. In verse 4 and verse 7, Jonah speaks about the temple. He says, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. And again, he says, and yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. He keeps talking about the temple. What's up with the temple? Here's the deal. For one of the things about this, these people was the centerpiece of their religion and their relationship with God was the temple. God had actually designed it, told them how to build it. And it was the place where they could actually have access into God's presence. Now, what's interesting about it is, some of you know this, is in the center of the temple was a place where actually God's presence was, and there was a curtain that went up right before it, and only one person, one time a year, could go in. That was it. And even that person had to go through an elaborate amount of sacrifices and cleansing ceremonies to walk into God's presence. But notice this for a moment. Jonah has just said, listen, I've been judged by God. I deserve it. I'm culpable. But then he says, he remembers the temple. He remembers, actually, there's a God who grants forgiveness. There is a God who actually allows these types of people into his presence. In other words, there's a place where God actually says, you can have access to me regardless of what you've done. And here's what's beautiful. We've said this for a while, that Jonah is actually a mini Bible. It's kind of like the Bible in a nutshell. In Matthew 12, Jesus, talking about Jonah, says this, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is amazing because Jesus is saying this. If you want to understand Jesus' ministry, why he came, Jesus says, this is the sign. And here's what happened. Here's the meaning. Jesus, through his death, is killed. He sacrificed so that we might be forgiven and have a relationship with God. And he's raised from the dead three days later. And that's it. Listen, this is, these are the dynamics of grace. You've got to understand, ultimately, you deserve judgment. You're as good as dead. There's nothing you can do. Secondly, you've got to understand, you're not good. You're, you're absolutely, in some ways, all the way down, all the way through, in some ways, corrupt. There's ways you avoid God, rebel against God, and yet at the same point, God has come to rescue you. That's the dynamics of grace. That's what's got to be at work in your life. Do you see it? This is what's in Jonah's life. This is what's at work. This is at the core of his prayer. And here's the point. To the degree that you understand those dynamics... That's the degree in which it'll transform you. That's what will take you from a no to a yes. So thirdly and lastly, how do we put it into practice? How do we, how do we take this grace and make it operative in our lives? You know, one of the things, um, listen, for many of you this morning, some of you, this has been new-ish, but 
Some of you, this, you've heard this a lot of times. The first two points were almost like review for you. You know these things. But here's what's fascinating, is if you read the whole book of Jonah, when you get to Jonah 4, Jonah is angry, he's pouting, because God has shown mercy on Nineveh. In other words, do you understand the reason why Jonah didn't go in chapter 1, and then he said, yes, he went, he preached, and they came to know, excuse me, came to return to God, Jonah gets upset again. In other words, he's not a complete finished product, is he? He's still a mess. And here's the point. What most people don't understand is simply this. Transformation takes time. There are certain times, I would imagine for some of you, you have experienced significant growth. Maybe it would be an attitude or a particular sin, and you've been able to say no and say yes to God in a particular area. But there are other times where where you're like, man, I feel like I've maybe moved two inches or not at all. I feel like I'm the same person. How do I change, right? I'm responding the same way to my circumstances. It's a slower process, and here's the deal. It's not merely a process where you let go and you let God. Do you hear that for a moment? It's not merely a passive thing. That's not what we see in Jonah here. There are three things that Jonah does to put this into practice, how this grace becomes operative in his life. And the first is this, you must abandon your idols. Look at verse 8. Jonah says this, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. You know, we, we say this quite often here at Redeemer City, um, idols are not merely miniature statues. They are anything in our lives that we love more than God. And therefore, it can be popularity, it can be wealth, it can be looks, it can be politics, it can be sex, anything we build our significance or our status on. And listen, this is why Jonah is so mad in chapter 4. Because what we do is we take who God is and we try and, and whittle him into who we really want him to be. You know, Voltaire has this great quote where he says, in the beginning God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. And that's so true. You know, so for Jonah, he wants to make God an image that just blesses his kind of people, his tribe, right? That's what he wants. And God will not fit in that box. And, and we're no different. We try to put God in a certain box. Let me just say a couple of different thoughts about where this might be for you and for me. Teenagers, let me ask this question. Are you building your significance and your status on how your peers view you? Some of you this morning, you might be even self-loathing because you look around and you, you, you just, you're not that popular and you feel pretty cruddy. Do you know something? Do you know the dynamics of grace in your life? Do you know what that can do to you? Do you know there's a God who knows you all the way down, 
even the worst about you, even more than you know yourself. And guess what? He has loved you to the heights. That's, that's the God. That's the God of the gospel. Do you understand how that changes you? Or some of you, you know, you're on the, this like marathon of performance. And it might be in your role maybe as a mother, or it might be in your role at your office. And it's, it's why there's so much anxiety in your life. Do you realize if you are trusting in that idol, then it's all up to your performance. It's all how you're doing. It's all based on Monday to Friday, how's it going? It's how are people responding to you? But do you understand there's a performance by another that has already been done and has already been finished and that has been accounted to your account and it's through Jesus. You see how wonderful that is? Where do you run? Where do you run for hope? And don't you understand? What is available in the gospel and the dynamics of grace, it, it changes you. And notice it says, it says, hope and vanilla and, and, and forsake his steadfast love. Do you understand? Steadfast love means it's this love that never runs out. So even when you fail him on Monday, he'll be there on Tuesday. Do you understand that? Oh, it's so good. But secondly, Jonah prays. This seems a little bit like a no-duh. I just heard a pastor say I should pray. But I want you to notice something very unique about this. In Jonah's prayer, they're all riffs. They're all riffs on Psalms. Uh, verses six and seven are a riff from Psalm 88. Verse four is a riff from Psalm 31. You go through it, all of it. It's just, it's based on Psalms. And here's what I'd say, for many of us, we struggle with prayer because we don't know even what to say. And what's wonderful, in the middle of Scripture are 150 psalms, and they orient any circumstance, any life to God. They take theology, they take our emotions, and they locate it right here in a way to orient us to God. And here's what I'd say, one of the ways the, the dynamics of grace get worked in a person's life is through learning to pray and let me tell you what, the, the scriptures give us a great instrument, a great way of doing that right there in the Psalms. I was sitting with two other guys on Tuesday morning this week. We're sitting over coffee and we're in Psalm 25. In that Psalm, there's all these things being said about the person in the Psalm that are false, that are accusations. And rather than defending himself, the psalmist is bringing those things to God and saying, God, you help me. But also what's beautiful there is in the midst of it, two times the psalmist says, may I have sinned, please forgive me. Two times. In other words, the psalmist isn't saying, I'm perfect. It's the dynamics of grace in real life. Do you understand? That's the psalms. Oh, if, if you 
If you want your no to become a yes, if you want to grow in the dynamics of grace, let me just call you to spend time regularly in the Psalms. Learn. Read. It takes time. But this is what Jonah's doing. He's praying back the Psalms. And third and lastly, you've got to obey. In verse 9, it's, um, it's kind of stunning. Jonah says this, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Um, you know, simply put, when he says, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay, from here on out, Jonah goes back to his city. He returns to receive the second commission. Jonah says, I'm going to obey. And here's the point. One of the things that, there's a couple things that kind of, that malfunction or cause grace to malfunction in our lives, okay? Um, one of them is my sin's too big, okay? Okay, if, if God is showing Jonah grace here, let me just tell you what. God's grace is big enough for you, okay? But the second is this. I can just keep on sinning. That's the other malfunction. Because, listen, do you understand, if you understand how the height to which God loves you and the cost of what he's done for you, do you understand, if you understand that, the depth of that and the height of that, then it leads, it can't do anything but lead you to say, Listen, you've loved me that way. I'm yours. I'm all yours. In, in other words, let me put it this way. Right now in your life, what is it that you're saying no to that God is calling you to say yes to? I'm going to close in a moment here, but let me invite the worship team up as they get set. There's, um, in Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, uh, Jean Valjean He's the character, kind of the main character, and he spends 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. And um, after being released, he spends a night at a bishop's house because it's like the only place that'll take him in. And in the middle of the night, he just gets so afraid. And so he gets up and he grabs the spoons and the table settings that are made out of silver and he steals them, and he runs away. And the next morning, there's a knock at the bishop's house, and the door opens, and there's John Valjean with three officers, and he's in cuffs, right? And what's surprising is in the novel, the bishop says this to John Valjean, ah, here, here you are, I'm so glad to see you. I gave you the candlesticks too, which are like which are of silver like the rest, why did you not carry them away with your forks and spoons? And everybody is stunned. The officers are stunned and they ask, is this true? And the bishop says, yes. And they take the handcuffs off John Valjean. He's released. And he's absolutely stunned. And then the bishop gives him the two candlesticks and then he says these words, do not forget, never forget that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. 
My brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. My brothers and sisters, you have not been purchased with two candlesticks and some spoons. You have been purchased by the blood of Christ, and you no longer belong to evil. You belong to good. Therefore, live it out. Say yes to him. You are his, and he is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your Spirit, would you transform us with these dynamics of grace? Lord, enable us to be a people where this grace is operative, where it's not merely just head knowledge, but it goes all the way down to our heart and it leads to lives that are different. Lord, I continue to pray in this series that you would enable us to be more aware of our Jonah-like tendencies and that you would capture us yet again by your compassion and your mercy, which does not fail. And that from that, it would lead us out to be a light in this city for your name. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.